Experience the joy of running in the new Triumph 22 from Saucony, the original running brand. Stacked with luxury foam cushioning, Triumph 22 turns miles into smiles with the ultimate blend of comfort and energy return. Shop Triumph 22 at Saucony.com. That's S-A-U-C-O-N-Y.com. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and other cool stuff. Today, in honor of Earth Day, we'll investigate how the word green came to be associated with the environmental movement. It wasn't a given. And then in the second segment, we'll talk about the funnest word of them all. The original Earth Day proclamation in 1970 refers to our beautiful blue planet— And the first Earth Day flag consisted of a NASA photo of the Earth on a dark blue background. But the color of fields and forests prevailed. And today, when we think of ecology and environmentalism, we think of green, not blue. The connection of the color green to growing things is found in nature, of course, and the word green has associations with verdure, freshness, newness, health, and vitality that are widespread among the Germanic languages, according to the Oxford English Dictionary. So in Old and Early Middle English, we find forms of the word used to refer to the color of living vegetation, grass, and to grassy areas or leafy trees. The meaning was extended to refer especially to tender or unripe vegetation, and then more generally. The expression green cheese, for example, from the late 14th century, refers to cheese that still needs to be aged. The notion of green as unripe provided the basis for its later extension to people. So by the mid-16th century, green could be used to refer to immaturity, rawness, or inexperience. In medieval and Renaissance literary symbology, green retained that sense of immaturity. Green became the color of young love as well, and sometimes of fickleness, and it was the color of both the sea and of fortune. Green was also associated with green sickness, referring to the jaundice of chlorosis, a type of anemia common in young women. By William Shakespeare's time, green had a variety of symbolic possibilities, and he used most of them in his plays. In Love's Labor Lost, Don Armando's page, Moth, jokes with his master, who's discoursing on famous loves. Armando, oh, well-knit Samson, strong-jointed Samson, I'm in love too. Who was Samson's love, my dear Moth? Moth, a woman, master. Armando, of what complexion? Moth, of all the four, or the three, or the two, or one of the four. Armando, tell me precisely of what complexion? Moth, of the sea water green, sir. Armando, is that one of the four complexions? Moth, as I have read, sir, and the best of them, too. Armando, Green indeed is the color of lovers, but to have a love of that color, methinks Samson had small reason for it. He surely affected her for her wit. 
Moth, it was so, sir, for she had a green wit. The four complexions mentioned are the four humors of Hippocrates, and green refers to the phlegmatic type. The expression the green wit could indicate an immature wit or one that remains fresh, and Shakespeare is likely punning on the green withs or fresh vines with which Delilah bound Samson in the biblical tale. In other plays, Shakespeare used green to refer to youth. Cleopatra refers to my salad days when I was green in judgment. Or freshness, Claudius tells his court, Though yet of Hamlet our dear brother's death, the memory be green. And when Lady Macbeth chides her husband for cowardice, she perhaps refers to the green sickness associated with young women. Was the hope drunk, wherein you dressed yourself? Hath it slept since, and wakes it now to look so green and pale at what it did so freely? And of course, Shakespeare draws on an association of green with envy and jealousy in expressions like green-eyed jealousy and the green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on. For writers like Shakespeare, the color green was full of potential, but it shows up in popular neology, word coining, as well. In the 19th century, we find expressions like greenhorn, with the first OED citation of 1824, referring initially to immature cattle and then to inexperienced soldiers. The Civil War brought greenbacks for the paper money backed by government credit. In the early 19th century, red and green signals were used on railways for nighttime visibility, leading to the association of green and go. The early 20th century saw the gardening expression green thumb from 1937, and by the 1960s, the term green revolution was being used to refer to the transformation of agricultural practices for increased food production. From 1979 on, green refers to environmentalism broadly, though sometimes writers would signal that they were using the word in a novel way by placing it in scare quotes. The OED noted these new compounds in the last 40 years. Green fuel, 1979. Green minded, 1984. Green economy, 1986. Green marketing, 1988. Green consumerism, also 1988. Green Electricity, 1989. Green Chemistry, also 1989. Green Audits, again 1989. And Green Burial, 1991. The association of green with ecology is here to stay. And to think, it might have all been blue. Happy Earth Day. That segment was written by Edwin L. Battistella and originally appeared on the OUP blog. Battistella teaches linguistics and writing at Southern Oregon University in Ashland, where he's served as a dean and as interim provost. He's the author of Dangerous Crooked Scoundrels. Do you make these mistakes in English? Bad language? And the logic of markedness. Researching the word funnest and its close relation funner turned out to be a lot less fun than I had hoped, or at least more complicated. First, the easy part. Everyone agrees that fun was originally a noun. For example, you could say, we had fun, which is the grammatical equivalent of we had cake. Fun is more of a concept, whereas cake is more of a thing, but they're both nouns. 
Cake may jump out at you more as one of those people, places, and things, concrete nouns we've talked about before. But fun is also a noun. It's an abstract noun. But now we head down the slippery slope of fun because many modern sources grudgingly accept that fun can also be used as an adjective, as in squiggly throws a fun party. In that sentence, fun is an adjective that modifies the noun party. It was a fun party. How fun made its way from a noun to an adjective is a great illustration of how language can change over time. Nouns can be used to modify other nouns, and when they are, they're called attributive nouns. In the phrase sugar cookie, sugar is a noun, but it's being used in an attributive way to describe the cookie. Attributive nouns do the same thing as adjectives. You could say, I ate a sugar cookie, or I ate a yummy cookie. The sentences are constructed the same way, but sugar is an attributive noun and yummy is an adjective. The Oxford English Dictionary notes a few uses of fun as an attributive noun, such as fun fair and fun fest in the early 1900s. It was probably from there that fun worked its way from noun to adjective. In English, nouns often end up becoming adjectives too. A few sources note that using fun as an adjective is a generational thing. It's much more acceptable to children, youngsters, slackers, and people who were born after 1970. A Google Ngram search, which shows how often words are used in the books Google has scanned, shows that writers started using fun as an adjective more often around 1960. And using it that way has been steadily increasing ever since. In fact, I suspect many of you listening probably use fun as an adjective without even thinking about it, and it doesn't sound strange to your ears. But remember, that wasn't always the case. It's a concession on the part of language traditionalists to not freak out when you say something such as, it was a fun party. They'd prefer you say something like, we had fun at the party. Next, if you accept fun, do you have to accept funner and funnest? Here's where it gets really contentious. This is where I got stuck looking up reference after reference, trying to find a convincing answer. If people accept that fun is an adjective, they should accept that fun can be inflected like other adjectives. If wild becomes wilder and wildest, and silly becomes sillier and silliest, why can't fun become funner and funnest? In the episode on comparatives and superlatives, we told you that, quote, one-syllable adjectives use the suffixes er or est on the end of the adjective. For example, tall has one syllable. So if you wanted to compare the height of your family members— You might say, I'm taller than my sister, but I'm not the tallest of the family, unquote. If you accept that fun is an adjective, the way to compare the funness of two or three things would be to use the words funner and funnest. Yet, even people who do accept that fun is an adjective are unlikely to embrace funner and funnest. It seems as if language mavens haven't truly gotten over their irritation that fun has become an adjective, and they've decided to dig in their heels against funner and funnest. In their minds, if fun as an adjective is still somewhat informal, then the inflected forms are still non-standard, 
Or to use less fussy words, funnest is grating and horrifying. And the language mavens still have enough influence to hold the line for now. However, it's probably a losing battle. Again, a Google Ngram search shows a big and ongoing increase in the use of funner and funnest in books, starting around 1980. In the end, I've come to believe that there is a fun continuum. On one end, you have fun, the noun, and everyone is happy to cluster around and be associated with it. That's the standard usage. Then, if you move on to fun, the adjective, you've got a smaller but still very significant group of people who will give their approval. And then, as you move on down the continuum, you've got a much smaller group of people who are willing to grab funner and funnest by the shoulders and give them a big welcoming hug. That would be an example of language in flux. If you remember an Apple marketing campaign from way back in 2008, you'll remember that Steve Jobs was part of this group. He thrust funnest into the spotlight when he predicted that Apple's new iPod would be the funnest iPod ever. And maybe it was. But technology is fickle and language change is constant iPods aren't very common anymore, but the popularity of Funnest just keeps growing. Finally, I have a follow-up story about chicken milk from my friend Avon of the Endless Knot podcast. Hi, Mignon. It's Avon from the Endless Knot podcast with a follow-up to last week's Familect. I had to laugh when I heard your callers say that their family called chocolate milk chicken milk. Because our family uses the words chicken milk too, but not for chocolate milk, but for eggnog. And that's because up here in Canada, all our food and other stuff has French and English on the packaging. And in French, eggnog is called la de poule. I don't know if that's only in Quebec or if it's the France French for it as well. I've never checked. But of course, the literal translation of la de poule is milk of chicken. So in our family, and I'm pretty sure... Other people in Canada do this too. We commonly refer to eggnog as chicken milk. So that's, I guess, not just a familect, but maybe a local dialect. Anyway, love your show. Had to share that with you. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, Avon. I did a quick search, and I believe eggnog is called the same thing in France. And I've been thinking about eggnog ever since your call. I made some from a recipe instead of buying it pre-made last year for the holidays, and it was incredible. Maybe it could be a twice-a-year thing. Thanks to my audio engineer, Nathan Sams, and my editor, Adam Cecil. Our ad operations specialist is Morgan Christensen, and our marketing and publicity assistant is Davina Tomlin, who has forgotten just about everything from 10 years of martial arts training, but technically still has a black belt. And finally, our intern is Brendan Pika. That's all. Thanks for listening. Experience the joy of running in the new Triumph 22 from Saucony, the original running brand. Stacked with luxury foam cushioning, Triumph 22 turns miles into smiles with the ultimate blend of comfort and energy return. Shop Triumph 22 at Saucony.com. That's S-A-U-C-O-N-Y.com. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.